This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Rescue Will Begin in Its Own Time, four short fiction pieces by Franz Kafka, translated from the German by Michael Hoffman, which were published in The New Yorker in June of 2020. Even though the knife was big and sharp and the bread neither too soft nor too hard, the knife could not cut into it. We children looked up at Father in surprise. He said, why should you be surprised? Isn't it more surprising if something succeeds than if it fails? The stories were chosen by Ben Oakry, who is the author of two dozen books of fiction, poetry, and nonfiction, including the novels The Famished Road, which won the Booker Prize in 1991, and The Freedom Artist, which was published in 2019. Hi, Ben. Hello, Deborah. Welcome. So when we started talking about doing the podcast, one thing that was very clear to me was that you feel an affinity with Kafka's work. What is it that makes what he does important to you? Well, it's it's hard to say. The more you read Kafka, the more confusing it is, actually. Um, He's someone who gets more mysterious with more acquaintance. It's very strange. Mm And I think it's the deceptive quality he has. I think it's actually, I think it's the way his mind probes reality. It's um, a universalizing quality that his mind has. He's somehow trained himself either because of some deep trauma in his life or because of what he felt about life. He trained himself as a storyteller to constantly um, allegorize, universalize, while at the same time being deeply particular. And nobody, no other writer developed it to the degree um, that he had. And I also like his voice. His voice is most peculiar. Of course, I don't read the German. And they say in German, his voice is peculiarly plain, sometimes bureaucratically plain. But all the translations I've read into English, and Michael's is one of the most beautiful, one of the best. He has this voice that um, manages to bypass your, your brain and it goes straight into your psyche. Um, he's found this tone that's very normal, tone that just slowly shifts um, into completely unexpected places without any, without any striving. He sort of tricks you into feeling that what's to come is normal, and you only afterwards realize that it wasn't. Yeah, he does a kind of a, a continental shift beneath your feet, just gently moves you to somewhere, and you look around and you're it's not possible to work out how you got there. Um, And when you retrace his logic um, back, it's always infallible and always very, very quiet. Mm -hmm. When did you first read him? I read Kafka first when I came to England um, in the 70s, in the late 70s. And I had to read my way through uh, the great modern canon. Um, I literally had to re-educate myself as a writer. Because in Nigeria, I just, I just had the Penguin Classics. So I'd, my, my major literary reading really just involved the, the Dickens and the Ibsens and the, and the Chekhovs and the Tolstoys and the Shakespeare's, along with the, uh, the great African tradition, of course. Um, but I hadn't really quite got to the modern. And when I came to England in 1978 for the second time, ostensibly to study, but really to write, I just had to read my way through everything. And... To be honest with you, I just Kafka, I, he's someone you can read but not make sense of while you're reading him. And when you read him young, he's, 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 he's at the same time more strange than you can imagine and yet more intimate. Mm-hmm. 
The four pieces that you're reading here were published last fall in a book called The Lost Writings, which was a collection of short stories and fragments of Kafka's work that had either not been translated into English before or had only been included in collections that were long out of print. What was the experience for you of coming across new Kafka material at this point? Well, it's very exciting. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the other peculiar thing about Kafka is that he actually developed the cast of his mind, the cast of his writing mind, which is to say the way that his mind works when it's writing. He developed that really quite early. So if you read letters that he wrote or pieces that he wrote in his 20s when he was studying law at university and beginning to write, he already was Kafka. <laughs> um, so the, the fascinating thing we discover in finding new Kafka material is to see um, whether there are periods to Kafka as there are periods to Picasso. I mean, does Kafka have his, his blue period? Does he have his rose period? Um, and it's, it's very hard to tell. It's only in the depth of his investigation, the depth of his exploration, that you can begin to talk about periods. But otherwise, he became Kafka really quite early. It's quite shocking. Right. He had such a short life, too. There, maybe, there might have been a completely different writer in the, if he had lived past 40. Possibly. Although with Kafka, one never knows. <laughs> Do you think that these, these short pieces, fragments, show him in a different light, or are they very consistent with what you'd already read? Uh, both. Both. They're, they're really unexpected. The first one I was more familiar with before. The second one, not. Uh, the, the one about the loaf of bread. But, you know, only Kafka could make the cutting of a loaf of bread into an epic absurdity. <laughs> um, and then the, the, the farmer was to me a real revelation. I'd never, I'd never encountered that sort of um, oddly domestic aspect of Kafka. I mean, it was, it was always there, stay in the trial, stay in the castle. But um, that was a, that was, that was a re real revelation. Well, maybe we should hear the stories now and we'll talk some more afterwards. Now here's Ben Okri reading The Rescue Will Begin in Its Own Time by Franz Kafka, translated from the German by Michael Hoffman. The Rescue Will Begin in Its Own Time A legend is an attempt to explain the inexplicable. Imagine as it does from a basis of truth, it is bound to end in the inexplicable. We have four legends concerning Prometheus. According to the first of them, for betraying the gods to mankind, he was shackled to a peak in the Caucasus, and the gods sent eagles that ate at his liver as it kept growing back. According to the second, the pain of the jabbing beaks drove Prometheus ever deeper into the rocks until he became one with them. According to the third, his betrayal was forgotten in the course of millennia. The gods forgot, the eagles forgot, he himself forgot. According to the fourth, everyone grew tired of the procedure which had lost its raison d'etre. The gods grew tired, the eagles too. Even the wound grew tired and closed. The real riddle was the mountains. A large loaf of bread lay on the table. Father came in with a knife to cut it in half. But even though the knife was big and sharp and the bread neither too soft nor too hard, the knife could not cut into it. 
We children looked up at Father in surprise. He said, why should you be surprised? Isn't it more surprising if something succeeds than if it fails? Go to bed. Perhaps I'll manage it later. We went to bed, but every now and again, at all hours of the night, one or another of us got up and craned his neck to look at Father, who stood there, a big man in his long coat, his right leg braced behind him, seeking to drive the knife into the bread. When we woke up early in the morning, Father was just laying the knife aside and said, You see, I haven't managed yet. That's how hard it is. We wanted to distinguish ourselves, and he gave us permission to try. But we could hardly lift the knife, whose handle was still almost glowing from Father's efforts. It seemed to rear up out of our grasp. Father laughed and said, Let it go. I'm going out now. I'll try again tonight. I won't let a loaf of bread make a monkey out of me. It's bound to let itself be cut in the end. Of course it's allowed to resist, so it's resisting. But even as he said that, the bread seemed to shrivel up like the mouth of a grimly determined person. And now it was a very small loaf indeed. A farmer stopped me on the highway and begged me to come back to his house with him. Perhaps I could help. He had a falling out with his wife and their argument was wrecking his life. He also had some simple-minded children who hadn't turned out well. They just stood around or got up to mischief. I said I would be happy to go with him, but it was doubtful whether I, a stranger, would be able to help him in any way. I might be able to put the children to some useful task, but I'd probably be helpless with respect to his wife, because quarrelsomeness in a wife usually has its origin in some quality in the husband. And since he was unhappy with the situation, he had probably already taken pains to change himself but hadn't succeeded. So how could I possibly have more success? At the most, what I could do was divert the ire of the wife to myself. At the beginning, I was speaking more to myself than to him. But then I asked him what he would pay me for my trouble. He said we would rapidly come to some agreement. If I turned out to be of use... I could help myself to whatever I wanted. At that I stopped and said that this sort of vague promise was not going to satisfy me. I wanted a precise agreement as to what he would give me per month. He was astonished that I demanded anything like a monthly wage from him. I, in turn, was astonished that he was astonished. Did he suppose I could fix in a couple of hours what two people had done wrong over the course of their entire lives? And did he expect me at the end of those two hours to take a sack of dried peas, kiss his hand in gratitude, bundle myself up in my rags, and carry on down the icy road? Absolutely not. The farmer listened in silence, with head lowered but tense. The way I saw it, I told him, I would have to stay with him for a long time to first become familiar with the situation and think about possible improvements. And then I would have to stay even longer to create proper order, if such a thing was even possible. And by then, I would be old and tired. I would not be going anywhere, but would rest and enjoy the thanks of the parties involved. That won't be possible, the farmer said. Here you are wanting to install yourself in my house and maybe even drive me out of it in the end. Then I would be in even more trouble than I am already. 
Unless we trust each other, we won't come to an agreement, I said. Have I not shown I have trust in you? All I have is your word, and couldn't you break that? After I'd arranged everything in accordance with your wishes, couldn't you send me packing for all your promises? The farmer looked at me and said, You would never let that happen. Do what you want, I said, and think of me as you please, but don't forget, I'm saying this to you in friendship, as one man to another, that if you don't take me with you, you won't be able to stand it for much longer in your house. How are you going to go on living with your wife and those children? And if you don't take a chance and take me home with you, then why not drop everything and all the trouble you'll go on having at home and come with me? We'll go on the road together, and I won't hold your suspicion against you. I'm not at liberty to do that, the farmer said. I've been living with my wife now for 15 years. It's been difficult. I don't understand how I've done it, but in spite of that, I can't just abandon her without having tried everything that might make her bearable. Then I saw you on the road, and I thought I might make one final effort with you. Come with me, and I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? I don't want much, I said. I'm not out to exploit your predicament. I want you to take me on as your laborer for life. I can do all sorts of work and will be very useful to you. But I don't want to be treated like other laborers. You're not to give me orders. I have to be allowed to do what work I please. Now this, now that, now nothing at all, just as I please. You can ask me to do something as long as you're very gentle about it. And if you see that I don't want to do it, then you'll have to accept the fact. I won't require money, but clothes, linens, and boots up to present standards, and replaced when necessary. If such things are unobtainable in your village, then you'll have to go into town to buy them. But don't worry about that. My present clothes should last me for years. I'll be very happy with standard laborers' fare. Only, I do insist on having meat every day. Every day, he interjected, as though satisfied with all the other conditions. Every day, I said. I note your teeth are unusual, he said, trying to excuse my unusual stipulation. And he even reached into my mouth to feel them. Very sharp, he said, like a dog's. Well, anyway, meat every day, I said, and as much in the way of beer and spirits as you. That's a lot, he said. I drink a lot. So much the better, I said. Then if you tighten your belt, I'll tighten mine. Probably you only drink like that because of your unhappy home life. No, he said. Why should that be connected? But you shall have as much as me. We'll drink together. No, I said. I refuse to eat or drink in company. I insist on eating and drinking alone. Alone? The farmer asked in astonishment. All these wishes are making my head spin. There is not so much, I said. And I've almost got to the end. I want oil for a lamp that's to be kept burning at my side all night. I have the lamp here, just a little one that runs on next to nothing. It's really hardly worth mentioning, and I just mentioned it for the sake of completeness, lest there be some subsequent dispute between us. I dislike such things when it comes to being paid. At all other times I'm the mildest of men, but if terms once agreed upon are violated, I cut up rough. Remember that. If I'm not given everything I've earned, down to the last detail, I'm capable of setting fire to your house while you're asleep. But you have no need to deny what we have clearly agreed upon. And then, especially if you make the occasional present out of affection, 
It doesn't have to be worth much, just the odd little trifle. I will be loyal and hardy and very useful to you in all manner of ways. And I shall want nothing beyond what I have told you just now, except on August 24th, my name day, a little barrel of two gallons of rum. Two gallons, the farmer exclaimed, clapping his hands together. Yes, two gallons, I said. It's not much. You probably think you can beat me down, but I've already reduced my requirements to the bare bones, out of regard for you, of course. I would be ashamed if some stranger were to hear us. I couldn't possibly speak as we just now have in front of a stranger. So no one is to hear of our agreement. Well, who would believe it in any case? But the farmer said, It's better that you go your own way. I will go on home and try to make things up with the wife. It's true I have beaten her a lot of late. I think I'll let up a little. Perhaps she'll be grateful to me. And I've beaten the children a lot as well. I always get the whip out of the stables and beat them. I'll ease up on that a bit, and maybe things will improve. Admittedly, I've tried in the past without the least improvement, but your demands are too much. And even if they weren't, but no, it's more than the business will bear. Not possible. Meat every day, two gallons of rum. And even if it were possible, my wife would never allow it. And if she doesn't allow it, then I can't do it. So why the long negotiations? I said. To be perfectly honest, I'm not very interested in the whole matter. I am lying in a corner, watching, inasmuch as you can see anything from a recumbent position, listening, inasmuch as I'm able to understand anything. Other than that, I have been living in a sort of twilight for months, waiting for night to fall. My cellmate is in a different situation, an adamantine character, a captain. I can imagine his situation. He is of the view that his predicament is like that of a polar explorer who is frozen in some bleak waste but who will surely be rescued, or rather, has already been rescued, as one will be able to read in some account of polar exploration. And now there is the following schism. The fact that he will be rescued is for him beyond doubt, irrespective of his will, simply by virtue of the weight of his victor's personality. Now, should he wish for it? His wishing or not wishing will affect nothing. He will be rescued. But the question of whether he ought to wish for it as well remains. It is with this seemingly abstruse question that he is engaged he thinks it through, he lays it out before me, we discuss it together. We don't talk about his rescue. For the rescue, he is apparently content to pin all his hopes on a little hammer he has somehow obtained, the sort of little hammer you use to drive thumbtacks into a drawing board. He cannot afford anything more, but he doesn't use it either. Its mere possession delights him. Sometimes he kneels beside me and holds the hammer I've seen thousands of times in front of my face, or he takes my hand, spreads it out on the floor, and hammers all my fingers in turn. He knows that this hammer is not enough to knock the least splinter out of the wall, and he doesn't seek to do so either. Sometimes he runs his hammer along the walls as though to give the signal to the great waiting machinery of rescue 
to swing into operation. It will not happen exactly in this way. The rescue will begin in its own time, irrespective of the hammer. But it remains something, something palpable and graspable, a token, something one can kiss, as one cannot kiss rescue. Of course, one might say that the captain has been driven mad by captivity. The circle of his thinking is so diminished that it barely has room for a single thought. That was Ben Okri reading The Rescue Will Begin in Its Own Time by Franz Kafka, translated from the German by Michael Hoffman. The stories appeared in The New Yorker in June of 2020 and were included in The Lost Writings by Franz Kafka, which was published by New Directions last October. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ben, let's start with that first piece about uh, Prometheus and the, and the nature of legends. Kafka gives us four versions of the Prometheus story, the, the classic one we know, one in which Prometheus is subsumed into the rock, one in which the gods, the eagles, and Prometheus himself forget about his crime and his punishment, and one in which they all get tired of the whole thing. Um, <laughs> you told me in an email that after reading this piece, the mind hums for a while with its forbidding resonance. What is that resonance for you? Uh, the resonance is the... I'm going to use some odd words here, so forgive me. The unspeakability of myth, in a way. He is examining myth. He is almost being a, a psychotherapist of myth. He is looking at what myth is and what it does to us and how it lives in the mind. And with the Prometheus story, to take such a legend, which is a, one of the great founding legends of humanity, because it's about, it's about us, in a way, about us being given fire, about Prometheus and you know, the, and, and the human story. Mm -hmm. um, and then he deconstructs it. But he deconstructs it in a way that keeps the thing at the center of myth, the thing which we cannot ever really entirely put our hands or fingers on or entirely wrap our minds around. And that's, that's why it's myth. Um, and it goes on operating. It goes on working inside us. Um, it is oddly boundaryless, and yet it's contained within... A story that can be told in a minute or two. It's it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's very strange, and I think that's the resonance. There's something really, really vast contained in something really, really, very small, and yet the the spirit can't entirely contain it, but must live through it, through time. Well, you talked about resisting interpreting the piece, but I'm wondering if you do have an interpretation. What do you think Kafka is trying to say or do? Goodness. <laughs> 
Uh, Camus said about Kafka that the secret of Kafka is that he compels you to reread him. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that he writes in such a way uh, that you come to the end of a piece of writing and the only way you can make sense of it is to go back to the beginning of that piece of writing and to read it again. And the same thing happens. It's a kind of Sisyphus experience. Mm -hmm. He writes in such a way as to resist interpretation because I feel with Kafka that to interpret him in, in a way is to close off the energy that he freights constantly into you. So if I were to attempt the interpretation of this story, I would, I would say he's saying, don't even try. Um, <laughs> be open to the vastness of, of the riddle because he's pulled away from Prometheus, pulled away from the eagles, pulled away from the story. And, it's, and he says the real riddle was the mountains. You're left with this mass of inexplicability. He has given you nothing. He's taken you right back to the very thing upon which myth is nailed, um, upon which myth is driven. The very stuff, the very material of, of life and being and the world itself. Goodness. <laughs> yes, it's both a, an introduction and a conclusion, yeah. kind of to all forms of storytelling in a way. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I, I like the way he refuses to put myth on that pedestal and implies that, well, in, in real life, you just get tired of this, you know? Yes. This, this eternal repeating um, of the torture, it just becomes boring. Yes. Um, Even the wound itself gets bored and, and closes. <laughs> it closes itself up. And yeah, and, and it does this in, what, six or seven paragraphs, short paragraphs. Yeah, it's it's yeah. incredible. It's it really a, is. I remember reading, I remember the first time I read this, I must have read this legend 40, 50 times just to... I, after a while, I felt like the wound, and I just <laughs> and you I just closed grew, up. I, I closed up. Yeah. Well, we go from there to the piece about the bread, um, this loaf of bread that that resists being cut. And you mentioned earlier Kafka's endless allegorizing. Do you see this one as an allegory, or is it just a loaf of bread? You know, some writers are able to do that. They can work with a loaf of bread, and it's never anything else but a loaf of bread. But by the time they've finished, it is more than a loaf of bread, and it's, it's everything else. Um, not many. <laughs> and he does that with this story. Um, he's chosen one of the most central images um, in the human story, a loaf of bread, bread, food. A large loaf of bread lay on the table. I mean, just that sentence alone one octo. And Michael did a really beautiful job in the translation because he got that way in which Kafka early on had learned to see the world in these sentences that are complete, incomplete, tense, attention-ridden, dramatic, but very quiet um, images and pictures. A large loaf of bread lay on the table. It's already a problematic thing. It's like that apple, <laughs> uh, that giant apple in, in the painting by Magritte that giant apple in the room that sort of edges you out. There's no space in it. That's what mm -hmm. this bread is like, a large loaf of bread lay on the table. So it begins by giving you a sense of its size. So is it a loaf of bread or is it the impossible substance of life? Um, already my saying that I've strayed out of the Kafkaan universe, you're not <laughs> even supposed to think that. Um, what do you think, Deborah? If I have to interpret it, and I'm supposed to resist, um, <laughs> it's everything this man has tried to do or everything that man tries to do. And as he says, isn't it more surprising if something succeeds than if it fails? 
You know, that for me is the is the crucial line of the story. Yes. yes. That's a wonderful line. We shouldn't be surprised by failure. We should be surprised by success. And that's the one line that throws me completely out of it yes. and, and makes me think. I also see, and perhaps this is uh, me reading in my role of a, as a parent, but it's interesting to me that we see this from the child's view, from the children's view. We don't just have a man trying to cut a loaf of bread. We have children watching their father, who is a big man in a long coat, who should be sort of superhuman in their eyes, and yet he can't cut a loaf of bread. He can't cut a loaf of bread. And he's got a good sharp knife. It's a good knife. (laughs) It's a good knife. And Kafka takes great pains to make very clear the important elements of these objects. A large loaf of bread, the knife was big and sharp. And the bread, mm-hmm. neither too soft nor too hard. He gives us these, um, these paradoxes, no? Yeah, and yet the, the bread is allowed to resist, and that's also one of the strangest lines in the story. It's allowed yes. to resist. Who's allowing it to? Well, it's bound to let itself be cut in the end. Um, I, I feel that's not a line of, of certainty. It's a line said with um, a, a, almost a secret despair in it. Mm-hmm. It's bound to let itself be cut in the end, really. And in fact, in the end, it's just shriveled up and small, but still uncut. Yes, like the mouth of a grimly determined person. Yeah. He doesn't often give images like that, similes and metaphors, but when he does, he does does the strangest paralleling of things, a loaf of bread like the mouth of a grimly determined person. You know, the mind tries to contort a loaf of bread into that, and the very act of doing that has done something to the bread itself. Um, Not humanized it, but given it certain qualities of independent will. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that fascinated me was the slight um, Excalibur element of the Mm -hmm. children wanting to take up the knife, you know, pull the sword out of the stone, as it were. The handle was still almost glowing from Father's efforts. Wonderful. And the knife kind of rears away from them. Yes. So they're even less good at controlling it. Oh, yeah. They don't stand a chance. (laughs) Goodness. Yeah, you're right about the parental aspect of it. It's terrifying because, of course, Kafka is famous for his conflicted relationship with his father. It seemed to run through everything. It was the the rip in the psyche. Yeah, it's it's that moment of, of disillusionment. Of seeing, well, your your parent is not immortal. Your parent can't even cut this loaf of bread and feed you. Yes. But then you try and it rears out of your hands and you think, oh my goodness. It's going to be a difficult life. <laughs> Dad can't do it. And it's leaping out of my hands. Are you wondering why they don't just tear it? Yes. Well, that's the other thing about the way Kafka makes his universe. He sets these lines... Uh, like a painter directing your eye with colors and lines. He, he sets these lines and you, you really can't really go against them because he's, he's set a logic going that this loaf of bread has to be dealt with with a knife. There's two things, bread and knife, uh, conjoined in a, mm-hmm. kind of, in a kind of relationship of effort and will and failure. In a way, we have the Prometheus story becoming unmythic and here we have a domestic story about cutting bread becoming mythic. Yes, yes. Mythicizing the ordinary. And yeah. 
ordinary, ordinaryizing the myth, <laughs> if, if I can make up words. Yeah, he yes. doesn't let anything be stable. No. One of the books that had the biggest influence on him as a, as a child was Ovid's Metamorphosis. Everything of his I read has been infected by this perilous fluidity of, of things and, and, and being. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking of the bucket man, bucket rider. Um, always this impossibility of keeping things contained, contained in what they were meant yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the third piece is, for me, by far the funniest. This long negotiation with the farmer <laughs> on the side of the highway. <laughs> it's almost like a stand-up comedy routine, you know, <laughs> with this man saying, I don't want much. I'm not out to exploit your predicament. I just want you to but, take me on as your laborer for life, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have to be able to work when I want to. And if I don't want to, I won't work. And, and if you want me to do anything, you, you have to ask me nicely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's worth remembering that Kafka in his youth was briefly, and I think it remained a part of him in some way, he was, he was briefly a socialist. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why I was interested in uh, where this story fits into his career, because there is that anarchistic, socialistic element at the root of this. This is These are workers' demands uh, taken to a, <laughs> a certain kind of absurdity, yet made perfectly normal and, and, and reasonable mm-hmm. in the way it's delivered. One thing that struck me about all of these, and especially this farmer story, is uh, the uh, internal drama of it. The drama is in the voice. It's a different story when you read it on a page uh, than when you actually read it out aloud. Mm-hmm. And Kafka loved reading his stories out aloud. He used to have his friends in stitches. They would come around <laughs> and he'd read, he'd read Metamorphosis to them and they'd fall about it, laughing. And you read it yourself and you're like, really? Till you read it, t- till you read it uh, yourself and give all the voices their, their, their characteristics. and their... He wanted to be a dramatist. He's a bit like T.S. Eliot in that way. He his drama was contained in his voices. Um, and it's in that sense, in the letter, I, in, in the email I wrote to you when I said Kafka is, is very Nigerian. Um, <laughs> it's this sense of the absurdity of, of demands, but in a perfectly normal setting. Do you recognize that? Is that, is that an American quality as well? Um, I think it's not especially American, um, <laughs> unless there's some underlying motive for it, you know. I, and I, I thought about the story. I thought, perhaps this isn't absurd. Perhaps this man is trying to teach the farmer how he should treat his wife, ah, right? That's a lovely, that's a lovely interpretation. Ask her nicely. Don't tell her what to do. Give her meat every day, <laughs> you know, if he was sort of training him to become a good husband. But that that might be pushing it a little far. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's uh, that's a wonderful interpretation. I, I tell you why I like that interpretation. Um, he is presenting to the farmer uh, in a kind of uh, reverse mirror the unreasonableness of the farmer himself, isn't he? Mm-hmm. In a way, mm-hmm. I mean, the farmer's admission at the end is is shocking, is it not? I've been beating them a little too much. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should go easy. I'll, he doesn't even say he'll stop, but he'll let up a little. Mm-hmm. And perhaps she'll be grateful to me. And the kids as well, when he gets the whip out of the stables and beats them. So 
this man really needed a kind of real distorting mirror. So I, I'm, I'm really happy to run with your interpretation. <laughs> but, but I also think it's a legal story, isn't it? I think it's also a story about the absurdity of, 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 negotiation. of, negotiation, yeah. of negotiation itself. Yeah. And of course, this was a fragment, so we don't know if it actually, in Kafka's mind, ended where it ends. But ending on, you know, why the long negotiation just sort of tops off the absurdity of the whole thing. <laughs> Yes, I, I sometimes I sometimes wonder about this element of Kafka and his fragments and Kafka and his finished and unfinished. I think we should move away from worrying about that aspect of him, because um, I think I think where he stops or where he does not stop already contains his completion. I think he had a natural instinct, um, and when he stopped and it was no longer, it, it didn't go on for whatever reason. He didn't go on for it's because some deep honesty was at work in him. Um, he's a very deeply honest writer. I love the way he assigns his his contra characters, his opposing characters, such a fullness of the rigorous logic of their humanity. I'm thinking of those lines here. I don't want to be treated like other laborers. You're right. Yeah, I don't want to be treated like other laborers. Wow. Right. You're not to give me orders. Right. And he's going to be a laborer for life. I'm going to be. Yeah, I'm going to be a laborer for life. Yes. There's also a little bit of, of Little Red Riding Hood happening, I feel. You know, the way when he asks for meat, the farmer suddenly struck by his large teeth and even yes. feels in his mouth, you know, that this is perhaps not a man. It's perhaps a, a wolf in human clothing or... Yes. Um, yes, that's a very disturbing line. Every time I come to that, I mean, reading it aloud this time, when I came to that, you're right, I did veer off. I found myself suddenly veering off into another kind of... Um, fictional spaces, a different kind of genre, a different, mm -hmm. exactly. I suddenly went into the woods, yes. Very sharp, like a dog's. It's it's the brevity of that. Yeah. And yet then it goes back to speech. Uh, it continues, and, and the dog thing still dogs the mind, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And then we have the last piece with this narrator who's lying recumbent in a twilight for months waiting for night to fall and reading it over and over I, I noticed that very beginning more than I had the first time and I wondered is he actually in a prison with a captain or is he just in that state of being about to fall asleep and having kind of half dreams is this a vision or is this a story goodness is this a dream, a vision, or a story? <laughs> yeah, both. I think, uh, yes, I think you can really never be sure. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's that disclaimer at the beginning that's very worrying. I find, I find disclaimers in Kafka like double binds in a way, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. And you're like, why do you need to tell me that you're being perfectly honest? Um, are, you, <laughs> are you setting me up for something here? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not very interested in the whole matter, yet he goes into it in great detail. <laughs> you know, he's not very interested, but I'm lying in the corner, I'm watching, and, you know, in as much as... And then the language itself becomes quite sonorous, um, in a some, somewhat on Kafka way. I'm lying in a corner watching, in as much as you can see anything from a recumbent position, mm -hmm. listening, in as much as, you know, um, you're right. It's very hard, it's very hard to say. I don't. I don't think you can... But the nature of the way in which he writes stories is that he 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 he, he spotlights something, 
and yet at the same time, um, he's able to cast a, a penumbra of of its containment around it. So you 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 actually do put them in a cell, right? Right. Don't you? Yeah. What kind of cell do you put them in when you when you read it, Deborah? Is it a cell with with bars, or is it one with walls? Is it just all walls? Well, he says something about tapping with the hammer on the on the wooden walls. So I see I see wooden walls, but I also see you know a vision in the mind of the narrator. For me, what's at the very center of it is is this idea that you will be rescued, but should you wish for it? Yes. Yes. Or should you not wish for it? It won't change anything. Yes. So who's to say what one should do? And these two characters discussing this ad nauseum, you know, <laughs> and yes. arriving at no conclusion. Yeah, with the, with, at the end, the, the, the wound, the wound again closes, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Because mm-hmm. it just might be a mind with the circle of his thinking completely diminished. Yeah. This This talk about the rescue, this talking about something which you wish to happen, but which you know the happening of it or the not happening of it is, 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 is of no consequence, but you must talk about it. It's, it's very much a Kafka trope, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And refusing to come to a conclusion is as well. <laughs> yeah, the impossibility of coming to a conclusion. Yeah. Yes. The line that really, <laughs> he has those lines where again it's normal and then it hinges off into something else. Sometimes he kneels beside me and holds a hammer or he takes my hand spreads out on the floor and hammers all my fingers in turn now it's not it's not a heavy hammer but still that line is something is happening there with the tactility of hammer and finger and mm-hmm. the uselessness of the hammer again yeah. yeah kafka is very doubtful of the the hinge things the things of this world that we think uh, are meant to actually do things knives hammers Knives that don't cut bread, hammers that... Can't do anything, yeah. Can't do anything. Yeah. Well, I see in all of these pieces, there's an idea about our delusions of, of control and power. You know, we we should be able to control bread, but we can't. Or, you know, the farmer and believing that this stranger should be able to somehow take control of his marriage and the captain thinking his hammer will allow him to control his destiny. And they're all wrong. Or are they? Maybe they're not wrong. <laughs> Maybe in investing these items with that faith, that has done something. What do you think? Um, I, I think we're not at liberty to not work with the knives and the hammers. They're, they're all we've got. They're all we've got. But I, but I think Kafka is giving us his you know one of his um, imponderable hints that you know uh, it may be all we've got, but you you can't stake your life on it. You can't stake your life on them, mm-hmm. which is where existentialism begins in a way, right? Of the Kirkurdian kind, it is where it begins. It's um it's getting us to pull back from this this delusion that we have, and it is a delusion that we we have that. Things can ultimately alter things. The bread will do what it will do. Um, we we work on the world, but do we really work on the world? Or does the world, you know, what is it he says with the loaf of bread at the end? Or does the world 
and like the mouth of a grimly determined person, shriveled up underneath our hands for our restless and tireless thinking that we're, we, can, we can work on it. I don't know. For me, Kafka induces a kind of humility about life. Really desperately needed humility. I mean, here is a man coming after the, the age of the great belief we had in progress. And I think, I think Kafka was doubtful. Right. I think he was doubtful about uh, humans' faith in themselves and their ability to, yes, exert power over other things. You know, it comes back to the riddle is the mountains, the, the thing we can't change, we didn't make. Yes. We're back to the beginning. <laughs> A legend is an attempt to explain the inexplicable. Absolutely incredible. It is. And the inexplicable is all around us. Loaf of bread, war, rescue, rescue. <laughs> Are we really ever rescued? I think is another question he asks. Are we ever really rescued? Yeah. And here we are trying to explain the inexplicable. <laughs> so our, our goal with this podcast was, was futile from the beginning. Yeah, but look at the other part of that sentence. Imagine as it does from a basis of truth. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was futile. It's coming from <laughs> truth, but it's still going to end in the inexplicable. And I think that's, that's, that's not, let's not try and make Kafka or what he's trying to tell us too explicable. I, I think that's, um, that's the humility that, that, that he forces on us. I think we try to, we try to reduce um, uh, the world into manageable units of meaning. Uh, and the world, the world is a mountain. It's always beyond us. Maybe it's our biggest mistake. Maybe we should respect it enough, respect it more, look at it more, see what it is, understand its nature. Put down the knife. Put down the knife. Yes. And, and, and be nice to your wife. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Franz Kafka died at the age of 40 in 1924. His works, most of which were published posthumously, include The Metamorphosis, The Castle, and The Trial. The pieces included in this podcast were published in German in S. Fischer's compilation of Kafka's complete works in the volume titled Posthumous Writings and Fragments, and were translated into English by Michael Hoffman for the New Directions book The Lost Writings, which was published in 2020. Ben Okri, a poet, fiction writer, and playwright, is the author of more than two dozen books, including the novels The Famished Road, which won the Booker Prize in 1991, and The Freedom Artist, which came out in 2019. His story collection, Prayer for the Living, was published in the U.S. earlier this year. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.